0: We test our love for him, not only by loving one another, but also by testing our reaction to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans, in chapter 12, and in verses 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20, in the twelfth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. In other words, we are continuing our study of this last section of this most important, the twelfth chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans. We found throughout the chapter that the apostles' great emphasis is this, that the whole purpose of doctrine is to lead to life, to practice, to conduct, and to behavior. And uh, especially at a time like this, is it important that we should bear that in mind? People are not ready to listen to what we've got to say, but they still are ready to listen to our lives. And we find this as a motive running Right through this chapter. We are exalted to do these things. Not only for ourselves. And our own peace of mind and of heart. And our own enjoyment of this salvation. But we are called to do it still more. In order that we may truly represent the Christian life to others. And thereby attract people unto it. You remember how Peter makes exactly the same point. In his first epistle. Second chapter. Verses 11 and 12. Dearly beloved. beloved. I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having you a conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may behold your good works. And so, you see, that is the argument that the apostle uses here, that they may praise God and rejoice in him in the day of visitation. Now, it's exactly the same argument that we're dealing with here. Well, now then, all these injunctions, as we've been seeing, follow on uh, from one another. We've seen that the particular point in this last subsection, which begins at verse 14, is our reaction to other people and what they do to us. Having told us how we should behave in general, he now takes up this. You see, the gospel, the teaching, is very practical. The apostle was a man like ourselves, and he had to suffer and endure a great deal. And it's a very bad representation of the Christian teaching to present it as some kind of idealistic view of life, as if to say to people, the moment you become Christians, you'll never have any more troubles and problems. The teaching is exactly the opposite, that because we are Christians, we are likely to get more troubles than anybody else. In any case, we are called to a life Which has a very high standard. And here all this is being put before us. So he has told us to bless them which persecute us. Bless and curse not. We are to rejoice with them that rejoice. And weep with them that weep. But this is the great appeal really in this section. Be of the same mind one toward another. This preservation of unity. This uh, oneness of God's people. This is the thing that really he is most concerned about. And to that end, of course, he goes on, as we saw last time, to uh, exhort us to be peacemakers. Recompense to no man evil for evil, but rather provide things honest in the sight of all men. And you remember how we worked that out. Let everything that you do, let let it give this impression of your essential goodness. Provide uh, things honest in the sight of all men. Then he ended off by saying, if it be possible, it isn't always, but if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, we ended off there last Friday night. Well, uh, what we're dealing with now continues that. We are to live at peace with all men, as far as we can. If there isn't peace, well, let it not be your fault. If it, it may be another man's, you can't help that, if it be possible. As far as lies in you, as far as you are concerned. Don't you ever be the cause, he says, of trouble or of dispute or or any kind of warfare. Do your utmost always to create an atmosphere of peace and to preserve it. Well now then, the 19th verse follows on with it. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Here is one way in which you can help to preserve peace. If somebody does something to you, don't avenge yourselves. And by not avenging yourselves, you are helping to preserve this peace of which he has just been speaking. Now you notice that he introduces this in a very special way, with a very special appeal. Dearly beloved. Why do you think he does that? Well, I think the answer must be this. He's concerned about these people and their welfare. And he knows that if you indulge a spirit of revenge, whatever you may do to the other person, you'll make yourself very miserable. So he says, don't do that. He pleads with them, dearly beloved. He says he's anxious for them, and of course he's concerned about the whole good name of the church and the welfare of the church. There is nothing worse than a quarreling church, a church in dispute and wrangling, nothing does greater harm. The whole history, unfortunately, demonstrates that far too clearly. So the apostle is moved at this point. Dearly beloved, he appeals to, to pay very special attention to this matter. And I think he also does so because he knew the subtlety of the devil. And he knew that on a point like this, as we've seen on previous points, All this appeal, this standard which is set before us, is so contrary to human nature, to that which is natural in us, that it is perhaps the greatest demand that is ever made on us. How much easier it is to preach than to carry out this exhortation. How much easier it is to give up everything and go right off to the heart of Africa or some remote island in the Pacific. How much easier it is to do that than to carry out this particular injunction. Here, you see, you're looking at the Christian life and Christian living at its very acme. And the apostle, therefore, puts it in the form of this urgent appeal. Dearly beloved Jesus, I'm not only telling you, I'm pleading with you, I'm appealing to you. Beware of the subtlety of the devil. Well, now then, what is this teaching? Well, as usual, he puts it negatively and positively. Always the negative person. Avenge not yourself. Somebody does wrong to you, does harm to you, does something which he or she shouldn't do to you. And of course, our immediate instinct is to hit back. Avenge yourself, get your own back. Now that's human nature. You see it in children. You see it everywhere. We've all got it in us. We all know this perfectly well. So the apostle starts by telling us, don't do that. You're a Christian now. You don't act instinctively any longer. You see, you remember how we worked out the meaning of that uh, expression, provide things honest. It means uh, think think before you act. Don't act impulsively. The Christian thinks. The Christian stops. That's what shows that he is a Christian, that he is no longer the natural man. The natural man does it immediately. Animals live instinctively. And men as the result of the fall and the result of sin behaves like an animal. And that is it. Immediately you hit back. Avenge yourself. Don't do it, says the apostle. You're a Christian. Now I, I want to say again, as I've been saying about some of these previous injunctions, it's a good thing, you know, to get as far as the negative. If everybody in the church always had got as far as this negative, the church history would be very different. Don't despise the negative. The negative is very important. It is the first step. And if you can't get further than the negative, get as far as that. Don't hit back. Don't avenge yourself. But, of course, the apostle doesn't leave it at the negative. He goes on to the positive. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Now, the word rather is not in the original. It has been supplied by these authorized translators and, of course, it's, it's, it's a good addition. It, it helps us to understand. The word rather helps to bring out the contrast. Instead of doing that, go to the other extreme. Don't do that. It, it was put in for clarification and for emphasis. But it is actually not in the original. But it, the meaning, of course, is there, implicit. So I am justifying the putting of this word rather in italics, as you find it in the authorized version. But now then, here's the thing. What are we to do then? We are not to avenge ourselves. Well, he says, what you've got to do is give place unto wrath. What does this mean? Now, this is most interesting. This expression, give place. There are those who have uh, thought that it means this. Instead of, uh, in your own rage and temper, avenging yourself, don't do this. Let it pass. Cool down. Give it time. Don't act immediately. Give yourself a chance. They think it means that. Give place unto wrath in that way. Give it time. And then, well, you, you won't be so excited. You won't be so passionate. You won't be so moved. And others have suggested that it means this. That you allow your advers- advers- adversary to vent his rage and his wrath upon you. Here's a person in a temper doing something to you which is quite unjustifiable, and they think the apostle is saying, "Don't, don't avenge yourself, don't hit back, but just allow him to go on, just do nothing, let him have his fling, as it were, let him pour out his wrath upon you, give place to his wrath, let him do anything he likes." But uh, that is uh, an explanation that we cannot accept for a moment for the reasons that I'm now going to put before you. Whenever you're confronted by a a statement like this, a very good way, always, is to look up uh, similar usages of the very words that you are considering. And uh, the moment you do that, you will find that there are several uh, interesting usages of this word, examples of its being used. Now, let me give you one of them. It's in the Gospel according to St. Luke In chapter 14 and in the ninth verse, our Lord is giving this instruction in verse 8. When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest the more honorable men than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Now that's it. Give this man place. You've got to get up, out of the seat you've taken at the top of the table, and now you've got to get out of that and make room for this other man who is more honored than you are. Give place. Give this man place. And another example of the same thing is found in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 4 and in verse 27, where it is in an injunction. Neither give place to the devil. Which means, don't give him room. Don't give him an opportunity. Neither give place to the devil. Exactly the same word. So, it means this. It, makes, it means, make room for. Give scope, or free scope to. Or, if you like, it means, leave it to. So, that's the meaning of the expression, give place. Then you come to the word wrath, give place unto wrath. Now here, unfortunately, the uh, authorized version has left out a word. And uh, the word they've left out really is the key uh, to the understanding of this statement. It should have read like this. Um, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather make room for the wrath. The wrath. Not just wrath, but the wrath. And the moment you get that, I think the explanation becomes perfectly plain and clear. It is the wrath of God. Don't you avenge yourselves, but make room for the wrath of God. Don't indulge your wrath, but like the men in the feast who has to get up and go somewhere else, you do this. Make room for, give free stoop, make allowance for, prepare the way for, leave it to. the the wrath of God. Now, I want to show you how this uh, must of necessity be the true explanation for what follows immediately establishes it as undoubtedly the only adequate meaning. It goes on to say, for it is written. It is written. Don't, don't, avenge yourselves, but make room for the wrath of God. Why? Well, because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And there you have a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. And you see, what that means is this, vengeance is mine, says God, not yours. The emphasis is upon the mine. Mine is the vengeance, not yours. So you see, the apostle brings in this quotation, as is his custom, to substantiate an argument. He says, "Don't you do that? Because vengeance really doesn't belong to you; it belongs to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay," said the Lord. Now, the word "repay" is simple. It's all right. It means requite. It means give back or pay back, if you like. And this is teaching. Which we find our Lord giving in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember how at the beginning of the seventh chapter you read this. Judge not that he be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. That's repaying. That's sort of paying you back in your own kind. Or another way of putting it is, of course, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Well, now there we've taken the words and the phrases and expressions, and that puts us now into a position to consider the teaching. What is the apostle telling us? Well, let me put it like this to you. We must never seek personal vengeance. Never. Avenge not yourself. Never seek personal vengeance. Why not? Well, the reason is this. That it is God's work to do that and not ours. That is God's prerogative. That is God's business, if you like. That is God's work. It isn't ours. Why isn't it ours? And here we come to a very important principle. You see, the apostle doesn't merely tell us these things. The explanation is implicit in his teaching. Why is this God's work and not ours? And the answer is because we are sinful. Because we are all sinners. Because we are unjust as the result of sin. Our judgment is inadequate. We are unfit to do this. Now when we come to the 13th chapter, we will find that God has delegated certain forms of judgment to people, to men. And we are to carry that out. But remember, we are never to go beyond that. And here he is dealing in particular with this question of personal vengeance. By nature we are so constituted that we are unfit for such a task, and especially of course when it happens to be our own case. We all know this. We are very bad judges of ourselves and of our own position and our own conditions and what happens to us as a result of sin we're all self-centered we're always on the defensive always shielding self we'll see a thing in another man and we'll denounce it but the same thing in us we'll always explain it away accusing or excusing one another as Paul has already put it to us in the second chapter so we are not fit to exercise this kind of judgment we don't see the whole position we are biased judges and as we are thus incapable. Of arriving at a true judgment. It is a very dangerous thing. For us to take the punishment. Into our own hands. No no. God alone is the judge. He is the judge of the whole earth. And he alone. Is the judge. God's judgment. God's wrath. Is always holy. It is always just. It is always righteous. It is always controlled. Now, this word wrath, you see, is used here with respect to God. Uh, Neither, but he says, but rather give place to the wrath of God. Now, we've already had this expression about the wrath of God way back in the 18th verse of the first chapter of this great epistle where he says, for the wrath of God is already revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hold down the truth in unrighteousness. And when we were dealing with that, we emphasized this point that we must never think of the wrath of God as we think of the wrath of a human being.
1: Our wrath
0: is passionate and is always lacking in an element of control. But the wrath of God must not be thought of like that. God's wrath is always judicial. It is never vindictive. It is never a passion that carries him away, as it were. Now, with men it is, but with God it is not. The wrath of God and the judgment of God are always just, always righteous, always holy, always strictly judicial. And for that reason, says the apostle. Because of your own condition and inadequacy, and because God is what he is, don't you do it. Leave it to God. Don't avenge yourself, but make room for it. Stand aside, as it were, and allow God to do this thing instead of doing it yourself. Leave it entirely to God. But now it is really important that we should do this in the right spirit. And this is where the subtlety comes in, in this matter. The devil can appear as an angel of light. He can quote scripture. And the devil comes at times and tells men when he's prepared to pay heed to this injunction, the devil comes and says, yes, that's right, you leave it to God. God will give it him. God will give it him in a way that you can't give it him. So you see, you don't avenge yourself in order that the one who's offended you may get still greater punishment than you could possibly ever have given him. The moment you say that, you have denied the entire spirit of this injunction. Now this is the most important point. The rest of the exposition will make this uh, still more plain and clear. I'm just emphasizing it at this particular point. We must never desire the harm of the person who's offended us. Never. So you don't leave him to God in order that he may get yet greater punishment. Quite the reverse. You leave him to God because you recognize and realize that you're incapable of a just judgment and that God alone is capable of it. So what he's really saying is this. Leave him entirely in God's hands Leave God to deal with him. Now, our Lord himself, you remember, acted entirely on this principle. Peter puts it before us, as we were seeing in the chapter we read at the beginning last Friday night, in the first epistle of Peter, and in the second chapter. You remember how it is put. Even here unto where he called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. What did he do? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That's it. He left it entirely to God. He didn't defend himself. He didn't avenge himself. He just committed himself and the whole case to him that judgeth righteously. And that is God and God alone. All right, well, now then, here is the teaching. I think it's plain and clear, isn't it? Avenge not yourselves. Make room for the vengeance and the wrath of God, and do that always in the right spirit. But we can't leave it at that. If I left it at that, my teaching would be misleading. We've got to add a qualification at this point, and I want to show you that it's a most important one. And particularly, perhaps, at a time like this. There are many people who have taken this injunction uh, at the point at which I've just left it. And have gone no further. And they have argued or deduced from that that uh, what the apostle is teaching is uh, a kind of flabby passivity. That uh, we are uh, just uh, to do nothing at all. And they press it as far as this. And it's a very common teaching today. These people don't believe in punishment at all. They don't believe in retribution at all. Uh, They heartily dislike the whole teaching concerning the wrath of God. You are familiar with this so-called teaching of Christianity today. Spirit of Christianity, they call it. And they don't hesitate to take whole sections out of the scripture, and particularly this one. God, they say, is love. And that means that there is no punishment, no vengeance, no wrath. I've heard people say this, and I've read it many times in the writings of such people. They say that they don't believe in such a God. The idea that there can be wrath in God and any talk of vengeance in connection with God, is to them a a contradiction of the entire spirit of Christianity. And so, you are familiar with this teaching. They would have us say, therefore, that uh, we just bear everything in all realms and in all respects, and that we should not be interested at all in the notion of punishment and in the notion of retribution. But it's very important that we should realize how wrong that teaching is, So let me put it to you like this. Let me put it as a number of of propositions to you. We must never be concerned about personal wrongs or seek personal vengeance. That is an absolute. Never. Never seek personal vengeance. doesn't matter what has been done to you. That is always wrong. Avenge not yourself. We must go further than that. We must never desire even an enemy personal harm. Now this is the essence of the Christian teaching. I could give you my scriptures, as you know, from the Sermon on the Mount. I quoted some of them last Friday evening from the end of the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Love your enemies. Now you can't love an enemy and desire him harm at the same time. That is why I say, as my second principle, that we must never desire the harm of any person. Now, they may have treated you abominably. Doesn't matter. Avenge not yourself. Not only in action, but not even in desire. Now, that's all right. That's perfectly sure. But, from here on, I've got to say this. Nevertheless, though I am never to avenge a personal wrong or desire my enemy any harm... I am at the same time to be concerned about truth, about righteousness, about justice, and about the glory of God. Now you see the importance of this principle. And I'll show you why this becomes so important, not only in a practical way, but also from the standpoint of your handling of the scriptures. But let's leave it at that for the moment as my third principle we must be concerned about the principle of truth, justice, righteousness, and the glory of God. Fourthly, it is not only right, but it is our duty to desire that God's reign should be vindicated and extended, and that God's glory should be manifested over the whole earth. It is our duty to desire that. And fifthly, It is right that we should be comforted by the fact that God reigns over all. And that he will ultimately vindicate himself and his reign and his rule over all. In the punishment of all those who are his enemies. Now you notice how I'm putting it. I am saying that it is right that we should be comforted by this thought. That in an age, an evil age like this, when God's enemies are in the ascendant and rampant and seem to have everything under their control it is right and good that we as God's people should be comforted in the knowledge that the Lord reigneth in spite of everything and will reign and will finally vindicate himself and his glory and a part of this vindication will be the punishment of the wicked the enemies of God. Now I want to give you an illustration of this distinction which I'm drawing. The distinction is, you see, between personal wrongs and wrongs to the name and the glory of God. I am not to avenge personal wrongs, but if I have not got a zeal for the name and the glory of God, well then, I am not behaving in a truly Christian manner. Now, let me give you uh, some illustrations of what I mean, where you see this distinction which I'm drawing actually in practice. Take, for instance what we are told in the 16th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, about the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul and Silas, you remember, at Philippi. Paul and Silas had been arrested, quite wrongly, quite unjustly. It was a scandalous action, and they had been thrown into the innermost prison, and their feet had been made fast in the stocks. You remember the story in the earthquake, and so on. But then we read that when it was day, I'm reading at the 35th verse, The magistrates sent the sergeants saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. Listen. But Paul said unto them, they have beaten us openly and condemned being Romans and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. Now, you see how the apostle drew this distinction there. Paul was not avenging himself there. He's not concerned about the personal wrong that was done to him. But he is concerned about the dignity and the honor of law and of justice. Here are men who are supposed to be administering justice, and they're being most unjust. Paul refuses to go out like that. The magistrates have got to come down, and they've got to carry out the law. All law ultimately derives from God. Now, I mustn't anticipate the thirteenth chapter of this great epistle, but we'll be dealing with it then more fully. But here you see the apostle at once draws the distinction. It isn't the personal indignity to which he'd been subjected. It wasn't the wrongness of what they'd done to him. This, These men, these magistrates, are violating the law that they meant to uphold, and the apostle objects to it, and he reprimands them, and he shows them exactly how they should be behaving in themselves. And you've got another example, really, of the same thing in the 23rd chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Let me read the first three verses. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the high priest Ananias commended them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandedst me to be smitten contrary to the law? Oh, he's there again, you see, using exactly the same principle. It wasn't that he'd been struck in the mouth. It was the wrongness, the injustice of the thing. Here's a man, again, administering law for marriage. Incidentally, the apostle wasn't aware that this man was the high priest. That's not the thing that matters at all. The thing that matters is that here was a man who was abusing his position. And the apostle, not to vindicate himself or to get vengeance for himself, but in the interest of truth, Of law, of justice and righteousness, he reprimands this men and asserts this great principle. But let me give you a still more interesting example of this thing, which has always fascinated me. It's in the second epistle to Timothy, in the fourth chapter, and I'm going to read verses 14, 15, and 16. 2 Timothy 4, 14 to 16. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou were also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. You see the different way in which the apostle reacts to Alexander the coppersmith and these fellow Christians of his who all forsook him at his first trial. Here was the apostle up on trial for the first time and they all suddenly disappeared, leaving Paul to stand alone. Christian people have tended to do that throughout the centuries and are still doing that sort of thing. Farewell friends who are not there when you need them perhaps most of all. But you notice the apostle doesn't react to that in the same way as he reacts to Alexander the coppersmith. When he's dealing with a man like Alexander the coppersmith who was militantly opposing the truth and hindering it, the apostle says, the Lord reward him. He's not doing anything personal. This man had done Paul grievous harm. He did me much evil. And he knows he's ready to do it to Timothy and to others. But he doesn't get his own back on him. He doesn't avenge himself. He does the very thing he's telling the Romans to do. He stands aside and he says, The Lord reward him according to his works. He's leaving it to God to judge the case and to decide what punishment to mete out to him. But you see, when he's dealing with these weak Christians, that was their trouble. There was no wrong in them. There was nothing really harmful in them. They were just weak. They were just feeble people. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Just cowards, weaklings. Now the apostle's attitude to them is a very different one. He says, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. He pleaded for them with God. He doesn't just leave them in the hands of God. He prays God to have pity and to have mercy upon them, to remember that they're but weak people, and so on, and all the various considerations. He intercedes on their behalf. Now, you see, here is a most important point there. The standing for the principle of truth and of righteousness in general and the way in which one deals with a personal wrong or a failure on the part of people with respect to ourselves. Very well. Why have I made all this point? Why have I felt it necessary in my exposition to show that the apostle's injunction here, in Romans twelve nineteen, is not inculcating a flabby kind of passivity or some vague talk about the love of God which doesn't believe in truth and righteousness and justice and discipline and punishment and retribution, the wrath of God and the vengeance of God. Why am I making this point? Well, here is my first reason. All I've been trying to say is the real explanation of the so-called imprecatory or vindictive psalms. You know, you'll find many of the psalms in the Old Testament, in the Book of Psalms, where the psalmist prays terrible punishment to come upon the unbelievers, and so on. There are many examples of these imprecatory psalms. Take, for instance, in Psalm 69, you read this sort of thing Let their table become a snare before them, and, let, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened, that they see not, and make their lines continually to shake. You remember the last statement in Psalm 104, let the sinners be consumed out of the earth, and so on. Now, people have often stumbled at these imprecatory, or as they sometimes call them, vindictive psalms. Now, there is no difficulty about them if you approach them along the lines that I've just been putting before you. In all those psalms, the psalmist is not writing from the personal standpoint. He's not writing at all from the sense of wanting to get vengeance for himself. No, no. He's writing entirely from the standpoint of the honor and the glory of God. He's grieved as he sees these people flouting God's laws, trampling upon the sanctities, speaking in their arrogance. It isn't himself, it is God's enemies. And it is his zeal for the Lord and the name of the Lord that makes the psalmist write as he does. And that is the real and the sole explanation of the imprecatory songs. If you just draw the distinction between the personal and the glory of God and his justice and his righteousness, you will have no difficulty with respect to them. Remember, these men were men of their own times and life was like that at the time and it's expressed in a material manner. But the principle is the thing that is important and that is the principle. Now, I know, and I've, I've got to admit this, that some teachers in the past and preachers have, it seems to me, gone much too far in stating that particular principle. There were old preachers uh, two or three centuries ago who used to say that the righteous should uh, greatly rejoice at the thought of seeing the torments of the unbelievers in hell. I think that's going too far. Carrying the principle too far. The principle is That we should never be concerned about personal vengeance, but that we should be concerned about the glory of God and his holy name. And if we are not concerned about that, there is something wrong with us. Very well, there then is the first uh, application, if you like, of the principle that is taught here. So you see that if you don't grasp this principle, you can't really understand your Old Testament. And if you don't understand your Old Testament, you will soon not be understanding your New Testament. Because they go together. Well now, here's the second point which I would make. This teaching is also the real answer to what is known as pacifism. You're familiar with the teaching of the pacifists. Here are people who say that it is wrong to kill at all times under all conditions. These are people who say that men who fought in the last war or the previous one or in any other war were sinning grievously. That a Christian under no circumstances should kill. And you say, well, why do you say that? Well, they say, look at it, the commandment says, thou shalt not kill. Our Lord taught him the Sermon on the Mount, if a man strikes thee on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, they say the thing is quite simple. Now, you see, it isn't as simple as that, is it? That's what I call extracting statements out of the scripture instead of comparing scripture with scripture. God said, thou shalt not kill. But you notice in the Old Testament, in which that is recorded, that the same God commended the children of Israel to exterminate the Amalekites. And you will read that King Saul actually got into terrible trouble. Because he hadn't carried out the commandment, and had spared some of them. He is punished for not killing them every one. Now, what is the explanation of this? Well, the explanation is quite simple. It is again the difference between the personal and the general. The command thou shalt not kill is to the individual. The command to turn the other cheek is again to the individual. It's not with regard to the state, it is not with regard to countries, it is not with regard to society at large. And I prove that, as I say, by showing that the God who says thou shalt not kill commends them to kill certain enemies, enemies of his as well as enemies of themselves. And when we come to the 13th chapter, we shall find that the teaching about the magistrate not bearing the sword in vain, obviously is teaching precisely the same thing. There is a difference between my seeking personal vengeance and my believing that it is my duty to uphold the law of God. And the law of God is expressed in the law of the land, the powers that be are ordained of God, and so on, as we shall see in chapter 13. Now, we are to uphold this. We are not to misinterpret this question this teaching concerning vengeance, as meaning that there should never be any vengeance at all. There should, but not ours. It is to be God's vengeance. So you see, it incidentally covers the question of pacifism. And then there is one other matter that I want to put before you. You will often find that people say this. Oh, this is a teaching about the vengeance of God and the wrath of God and so on. That's Old Testament. It's not New Testament. And you know you've read statements in the press by people in Christian pulpits saying that they have no use for the God of the Old Testament. They believe in the God of Jesus. It's been very common teaching. There's nothing new about it. It started really in the first centuries of this Christian era. But it's been very popular in the present day. It seems so loving and so wonderful. They don't believe in the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament. Well, now, what do we say to this? Well, here are the answers. The first is that it is always wrong to create this division or antagonism between the two Testaments. It is the same God in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. If you wanted the best argument of all, it is this. Our Lord accepted the teaching of the Old Testament in its entirety. So you're not putting yourself against the Old Testament. You're putting yourself against the Son of God. But wait a minute, I can tell you more. If you trouble if these people took the trouble to read the Old Testament, they would find that these Old Testament characters whom they despise so much were able to rise to very great heights indeed. Look at a man like Job and what he suffered from his false friends. Look at his magnanimity. Look at his readiness to forgive everything. But take it in the case of David. David perhaps was a, a man we understand still better I mean. A man of strong feelings and passions and emotions. But you read the story of David, it's one of the most amazing things. Look at the way he was maltreated by Saul, the first king of Israel, who hounded him, as he points out, as if he were a flea being chased. And the indignities which he heaped upon David, the way David reacted to that is almost incredible. Many times he could have killed him, but he wouldn't do it. Let me read to you 1 Samuel 24, 12 and 13. David says, the Lord judge between me and thee. That's what he says to Saul. And the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. And you remember when David was told about the death of Saul and his son Jonathan. David's heart was broken. Now, you would have thought that David would have rejoiced in in view of the way in which Saul had treated him. And had insulted him in every conceivable manner. But when David hears of the death of Saul. He is overwhelmed with grief. Read the first chapter of the second book of Samuel. And his lament over the death of Saul. Then take the case of his handling of that terrible man Nabal. Who deserved vengeance if ever a man deserved it. David listens to the pleadings of Abigail. And he leaves it to God. And God dealt with Nabal. And brought about his death in his own way. Now David, I say instinctively, was a man like ourselves who was ready to avenge himself. But he doesn't do so. And one of the most glorious statements to me in the whole of the Old Testament is to be found in the second book of Samuel in chapter 4 and in verse 10. David, you see, when some of these foolish men of his had Killed a good man because of their jealousy of him. And they came and reported it to David and thought that he'd rejoiced. This is what David said. When one told me saying, behold Saul is dead. Thinking to have brought good tidings. I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag. Who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. No, no, says David. The men didn't understand me, didn't know me. He came rushing to me and thought I was going to reward him when he told me what he'd done to Saul. He said, I wasn't pleased by hearing that. David, in other words, doesn't avenge himself of his enemies. He leaves it entirely to God. So when you read your Old Testament, you find that these men were able to rise to the height of this injunction that we are considering together in Romans 12. But apart from that, the New Testament itself is full of this teaching about the wrath of God and the vengeance of God upon his enemies. You read the parable of the tares in Matthew 13 as spoken by our Lord and there you'll see it very plainly. Don't pull up the tares, leave them until the end, the judgment, the judgment of God. Read again the story of Dives and Lazarus. Read again the parable at the end of Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, where you get our Lord in the plainest language possible, talking about God's final retribution upon men and women who have disobeyed him. Let me read the words to you, because this is so forgotten today, that we really can't afford to take the risk. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, unto everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and he gave me no meat, and so on. Then shall I answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as he did it not unto one of the least of these, he did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal." You're not quarreling with the Old Testament. You are quarreling with the incarnation of God's love. And we've had this teaching already many times over in this great epistle to the Romans. And I read to you out of the second epistle to the Thessalonians at the beginning, because there it is again in an unmistakable manner. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the book of Revelation but a great exposition of the wrath and the vengeance of God upon his enemies, upon those who rejected his gospel, spurned the vice divine, rejected his great offer of love in his only begotten Son, and even in him crucified. Well, my friends, we must leave it at that for this evening. But you see, all this is implicit in this great statement. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves but make way for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And in the book of Revelation, we are given a vision of those saintly beings under the altar. And there they're crying out, How long, O Lord? My friends, if you and I haven't got a zeal for the name of God, If we haven't a zeal for the righteous judgment of God, our Christianity is seriously defective. We must never feel personal vengeance or a desire for personal vengeance. But if you don't feel that you look for the day when God will vindicate himself and all the scoffers and the sinners of today and of all ages will be receiving the just recompense of reward, I say your understanding of the Scripture is defective and your worship of God is seriously defective at the same time. This is not some flabby passivity or sentimentality. It is the inculcation of this great principle of the difference between personal vengeance and the vengeance of Almighty God. May He, by His Spirit, give us wisdom in these matters. O Lord, our God, we do indeed pray for this wisdom. We pray for a spirit of enlightenment and understanding. We pray, O God, that we may be ever guided by thy word, not by the sentimentality of the age in which we live, not by our own feelings, but by thy word and by thy blessed Holy Spirit. O grant unto us the spirit of thy dear Son, the mind that was in him, Ready to endure and suffer anything ourselves personally, but filled with a zeal for thine house, and knowing righteous indignation and holy wrath against sin and all who are thine enemies. O oh Lord, hear us in this our prayer. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit Abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see and rejoice in the brightness of his coming. Amen.